Welcome to Her Legal Global. I'm your host, Faye Gelb. Our podcast is dedicated to providing you with actionable skills to empower your legal career. And today we have a very exciting topic on how to eliminate or at least squash down your imposter syndrome in under 60 seconds. And we're talking with Claire Yosa, UK's leading expert on this subject. So I'm very excited to welcome you, Claire. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Faye. It's lovely to be here. I just want to tell everybody a little bit about your background, Claire, because it's pretty impressive. You started out as a Six Sigma mechanical engineer and the head of marketing at one of the world's most disruptive brands before pivoting and starting out for the last 17 years with businesses and working with them on their secret self-imposed glass ceilings, the most important of which is the imposter syndrome, which Mm -hmm. we are going to be talking about today. In terms of the imposter syndrome, you've got quite a bit of background on this with your 2019 landmark study, as well as Ditching Imposter Syndrome, your new book that's spread to over 30 countries and being read by numerous readers at this point. So I'm very excited to dive down into our topic for today, where we're going to be looking at it as it relates to law. Mm. And in talking about it, I would like to deal with a strategy for coping with it because Early Go Global is all about providing actionable skills. So let's just get started, Claire. Can you tell me a little bit about what is imposter syndrome and what is the difference between it and self-doubt? I'm really glad you've asked that, Faye. The first thing is imposter syndrome is that secret 3 a.m. self-talk where the inner critic is going crazy telling us somebody is going to find out we're not good enough. Somebody is going to realize that we're a fraud, that we only got there through luck, that they made a mistake hiring us. What if my luck runs out? What if they realize I'm not the person they think I am? And it has that core theme of I am not good enough. And how that then manifests in day to day is with self-sabotage, with hiding our genius and our skills, with not letting that light shine, not owning our achievements. The difference between it and self-doubt, and we found this in the 2019 imposter syndrome research study, is self-doubt and confidence are actually about what we can and can't do. So they're up there, kind of the beliefs, the skills, the capabilities. So if you're in law, for example, and you move into a new branch of law, there will be things that you can't do yet because you don't have the memory that, I mean, I'm in awe of lawyers, frankly, at the memory for case histories and precedents and things. You might not have that. So there are things you don't know yet. And that's where self-doubt comes in. It's when we talk about self-doubt, it's what if I don't know as much as everybody else yet? Imposter syndrome is much deeper. I have a model I call the imposter syndrome iceberg and the the self-doubt and confidence is fairly near the surface because we're kind of consciously aware of it. Imposter syndrome, when you listen to people talking about it, who am I to be doing that? I am not good enough. I am a fraud. What if they realize I am the wrong person for this job? Those I am statements mark out imposter syndrome. So I can versus I am. And that's down at that deeper identity level. What does this mean about me as a person? So this is how to tell the difference between self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And self-doubt is often fixed by taking a course or having a decent mentor to guide you through the changes. Imposter syndrome needs that deeper work that goes below confidence to lay the foundations for who we're going to allow ourselves to become today and in the future. That's a great definition. And I love that distinction because I myself have been very confused. What is the reason that we would find this as being something very pivotal and important in law? So I found in the research study that law 
is one of the top three professions for imposter syndrome for women and for men. And I know we're here to talk about women today, but it's not a surprise because you are constantly being judged based on your last case, your last client result. And a single mistake can have massive consequences for you and for them. And one of the other ways I define imposter syndrome is it's the secret fear of others judging us the way we're judging ourselves. And law, by its very nature, is a profession where there's an awful lot of judging going on. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of judging going on. <laughs> there's a lot, and of, there's a lot of fear. It's not knowing more than I should know at this particular point because I'm not good enough. So it's it's more than just not knowing on the surface. Exactly. And then when we look at it from a woman's point of view, it's an extremely masculine profession. And I don't mean that it's full of men, though it has a lot lot of men. The way that you tend to behave in law tends to be a very masculine set of behaviours. It's that conflict. It's that adversity. And I know that there's a lot of work, certainly in the UK. I'm guessing it's the same in the Canada and the US of collaborative law. But actually what's still underpinning that legal structures that are about conflict and winning and beating. And so it's all coming down to this judging level. And this is one of the other differences between self-doubt and imposter syndrome. With self-doubt, we are evaluating our performance. Okay, I did this particularly well in that session. I could do that bit differently next time. With imposter syndrome, I could do that better next time, which means I am not good enough. So everything about it is about bringing down our behaviors to the identity level, which is why it's such a strong trigger for imposter syndrome. And there also aren't that many female role models acting in a feminine collaborative way, building on those incredible female leadership skills, because it's by nature of the profession, it's right and wrong, it's good and bad, it's about judging. So yeah, imposter syndrome was a really, really big issue for women in the law profession, but that doesn't mean that there's not plenty that you can do to set yourself free from it. I've read a little bit about how as you get higher in the ladder, it doesn't work so well for the way that women think and work. Can you tell me a little bit about that as it relates to imposter syndrome? Definitely. So one of the things we found in the research was that there were three hidden drivers behind the gender pay gap and lack of gender equity in leadership roles. One of them was imposter syndrome. One of them was lack of flexible working, forcing mothers to choose between their children and their career. And the third one was the alpha male culture in the most senior levels. And some companies have managed to clear this, but there are a huge number who haven't. And in law, because of the kind of adversarial way it runs and that judgmental right and wrong, what happens is there's a level that you can get to where you can still have that heart-based, collaborative, feminine, yin-yang balanced leadership role. And then suddenly the next level up, it becomes the old boys club. Even if it's got women in it, what you tend to see, I'm generalizing, what you tend to see is women behaving like men in those roles because that's how they fit in. You also find a lot of women, for example, don't want to go to partner in a law firm. So they're torn. Part of them is desperate to go to partner because they know that they can thrive in that role and make a bigger difference. And part of them is, do I want to become that version of me? Do I want to let go of so much of what's important to me? And until we have enough trailblazers in those roles, leading as all of who they really are, rather than fitting in, it's very hard for the women behind to follow up that ladder. And one of the other things we found in the research is that when a man is promoted, 
again, generalization, it tends to reduce imposter syndrome for him because he sees the job title as validation of his worthiness. For a woman, it tends to increase imposter syndrome. The severity goes up by up to 50% because she suddenly feels that she's in the spotlight. And that fear of, will they find out I'm not good enough? Suddenly she feels like everybody is super watching, not just watching for those mistakes. So we've been touching a little bit on the reasoning behind imposter syndrome and what goes on there. But what would you say gets in the way of people actually dealing with imposter syndrome? Is it that they don't recognize that they have it? Is it that it seems insurmountable? Are there myths? What do you think is the big number one driver behind why we're not dealing with this? So often we have what I call the bridge of coping strategies. So if you imagine imposter syndrome is like the gap between who you currently see yourself as being and who you think you need to be to achieve a goal, an outcome, or a dream. And because we sometimes don't have a choice but to go and do that stuff, we build that bridge of coping strategies over the gap. And it's like a ravine. And we're kind of walking across this bridge of coping strategies, desperate not to look down. If an opportunity to shine comes up, that ravine widens. So we then have to massively put more planks onto the bridge. So we're so stuck in the coping strategies that it becomes autopilot. We often don't even notice imposter syndrome is coming up until we've already self-sabotaged. Or a classic symptom is, for example, being in a meeting and being asked a question and your mind goes blank. And then 30 seconds later, you know exactly what your incredible response would have been. Classic imposter syndrome stress response. We might not notice the warning signs. There are also some myths that keep us stuck because the unconscious mind won't let you make a change it believes is impossible or dangerous. So if somebody believes imposter syndrome is incurable, it's very hard for them to then set themselves free from it. If they believe it's actually helping them to perform or a sign of high potential, part of their unconscious mind will say, well, I need that. Why would I let it go, even though it really hurts? And it's also a very common one is, I need imposter syndrome to keep me humble. Now, I don't know if this is the case for all of your listeners, but certainly here in the UK, we don't like to brag about our achievements. It's not what we do. Yeah, so having right. imposter syndrome to keep us humble can be a really big thing. You can imagine somebody running that belief, that myth, letting go of imposter syndrome suddenly means I'm going to be an arrogant big hat. I don't want to be that. I'll keep imposter syndrome. So yeah, it's missing the warning signs, being stuck in the middle of the coping strategies and the myths that hold us back. So these coping strategies can be wide variety of different ones that people have adapted over the years, like pushing through, ignoring their health. What other ones would you say we develop? So we found in the research, and I talk a lot in Ditching Imposter Syndrome about the four P's model. So the four P's of imposter syndrome. These are both warning signs and coping strategies. So the first P is perfectionism which I know in law will be very common to a lot of people. And there's a difference between what I call personality perfectionism and behavioral perfectionism. Okay. So personality perfectionism, you look at someone's shoes and you can tell whether they're running perfectionism. You look at their makeup, their hair, their fingernails, you can tell that <laughs> I am not a personality perfectionist. Okay. Right, right. Behavioral perfectionism is when it's a stress response, when we're setting our standards for performance so unachievable. And if we reach them, we write them off as fluke. So that's the first P. That is often seen in workaholism, in before everybody else, leaving after everybody else. That feeling in your gut of, I can't send this in because it's just not perfect. And if I do, they'll realize I'm not good enough. So it's a really useful warning sign. And what's, it's a coping strategy. Yeah. What's the difference between perfectionism and excellence? 
So excellence is where we're evaluating and wanting to aim high and fulfill our best. Perfectionism is fear-based. So excellence is I want to achieve and grow and become. So that's quite a positive emotional response. Perfectionism is that fear. I'm doing this because I'm scared. And the perfectionist that is a perfectionist all the time isn't the one that we're talking about with imposter syndrome. We're We're talking about the the situational stressors that bring up that perfectionism. Exactly. So when you're going around the supermarket, you might really not care what your shopping bags look like. Yeah. But when you're at work, if you don't hit that standard... Yeah, so it, as you say, it's situational, it's context dependent, and it can come and go. And the higher your stress levels are, or the higher imposter syndrome is in that particular moment, the higher the perfectionism goes. So that's the first P. The second P is procrastination. So this is where we're incredibly busy, but actually what we're doing is kind of running around in circles, ignoring that project that we really don't want to have to do. The third P is project paralysis, which is described as being like playing hide and seek with a three-year-old. If you've ever played hide and seek with a three-year-old, you know, when they like hide behind their hands, go, right, I'm hiding. You can't see me. And, you know, if we're kind grown-ups, the first few times we'll play along and eventually you have to break it to them. We're doing that with the project. It's pretending it doesn't exist, drowning it out completely. And the fourth P is people-pleasing, which in a working environment might be suddenly shifting our objective priorities to please somebody else taking on work that's not our own to feel like we fit in feeling we have to say yes because otherwise next time they might not ask us and what we found in the research is this perfectly maps the the fight flight freeze stress response perfectionism is fight i'm going to slay that project i am going to beat those goals you're going to war with it you've then got the flight which is procrastination you are running and you are busy but it's like you're running on the spot the third one, the people ple- people pleasing, is the freeze. The rabbit in headlights is waiting until the deadline can't be ignored anymore and pushing on through to get it done with adrenaline. And the fourth P is a new one from psychologists called fawning. So fawning and people pleasing, which is the equivalent of going up to that saber-toothed tiger and stroking its nose and asking it not to bite you. So these are very classic coping strategies. They're also really useful early warning signs. And On other notes for coping strategies, it might be things like not speaking up in meetings, not sharing opinions where maybe they're a bit controversial and you're pretty sure that somebody else is wrong. But it's like, whoa, who am I to tell them they're wrong? Yeah, it might be not having clear enough boundaries with a client for people pleasing. It might be for for women, particularly we found in the research, if a team has achieved a result, the male leader tended to talk about I and what he had specifically done to lead to that outcome. The female respondents tended to talk about we and share it amongst the team, which meant that those making the decisions about partner roles would say, oh yeah, well Claire didn't do much on that, it was her team. But Joe, you should see what he did. And actually their role might've been the same, but we talk about it differently. And another coping strategy that's very common is when you're praised, is to immediately deflect it by volunteering self-criticism which I see over and over again with my female clients is, hey, Claire, you did a really great job in that case last week. Oh yeah, but I missed this and I didn't do that. So these are some of the warning signs to be looking out for, but the most common one is tension in the body. Call it the flinch factor. You're thinking about a project you need to do or a meeting you're gonna go to and something in your body goes, oof. And that is a warning sign that you're potentially scared, potentially going to self-sabotage, and it's time to take action to clear that out. So just before we move into that, 
it's really important, I think, for everybody to really get what those signs are when you're you're beginning to experience this imposter mm-hmm. syndrome. And we were talking about procrastination, going back to that second step. And I just want to look at that a little bit more because some people are natural procrastinators. So is that mm-hmm. the same as the perfectionist that's always a perfectionist? Or is it is it different? Is it a situational thing? How do we distinguish from, you know, okay, maybe I don't procrastinate all the time, but I have a tendency to procrastinate on certain types of projects or certain Mm -hmm. with certain people or certain types of jobs that I'm expected to do. So how does that work? Well, it's a great question. And it's a really tough one in law because so often you literally have to monitor every minute of your time. When you're procrastinating, you're either costing the company or the client a lot of money or you're having to do it in your own time and not getting properly paid. The key here is to tap into your body. What do I get to avoid through this procrastinating? Is that a question we can ask with the other piece as well? What do I get by avoiding? What do I get to avoid or what am I achieving through this perfectionism? What do I get to avoid? What am I achieving through the project paralysis, through the people pleasing? So what you're looking at there is what's underneath the surface. And sometimes it can be really simple. Is you know what? I'm exhausted and I'm close to burnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That then gives you your answer. Or it can be you feel it in your gut or you feel it in your joys that, oh, if I put this piece of work in, they're going to judge me. So the difference so, yeah. between the procrastination and the paralysis is the paralysis is in a more specific moment. So to give you an example, I had a fantastic PhD graduate working for me when I was head of market research. And this particular person needed to do some database work for us with some customer analysis. And every single week I would say, hey, how's the database project going? And we knew what the deadline was every single week. Oh, it's great, Claire, all under control. And I trusted the day before the deadline. I realized they hadn't even started it because they didn't know what they were doing. And they were so stuck in paralysis. They didn't tell me. They didn't go and ask the IT guy who could have helped them in 20 minutes. They had literally done nothing on the project. So that's the difference with procrastination. We're pretty busy on the project. We're just not nailing the thing that we're avoiding. With project paralysis, it's like we can't see it, but it's consuming a huge amount of headspace and keeping us up at night. I'd also like to look a little bit more about this last one, this most interesting one, the fawning one, because I think that one comes out a lot. When I was reading the description of it, I was kind of shocked that when you say the yes instead of the no that you really want to say, (laughs) or you're looking to make people happy, that's a big one, because I think we do that a lot in all kinds of different ways. Then we you know, don't put ourselves first, we put off our exercise, we put off eating properly, we go and do something else for somebody else. Would you say that's all part of this? Or is it, is there a line that we have to cross in order to make it into imposter syndrome? People pleasing can be for all sorts of different reasons, because you can have self-worth issues, for example, without it actually being imposter syndrome. And the key with people pleasing is it's looking at what is my motivation for doing this? We are naturally wired to be part of a tribe. Human beings don't survive well on their own as lockdowns have been teaching people across the world over the past year. So that need to belong, that need to fit in with all of this, it's asking yourself, what is that doing for me? And it might just be, hey, I'm feeling really lonely and I thought I'd volunteer for this because then I get more people time. Great. But then you can look at it the other way. What is this costing me? If I say yes to something I want to say no to, what is that going to cost me? And starting to weigh that up, because there is always an opportunity cost for anything that we say yes to. 
So let's just go in and talk a bit more about how are we going to get this? There's a lot here. There's a ton that we've just covered. It seems like an impossible thing to get under control in under 60 seconds. So let's just dive into that. How would we go about that? Okay. So the key here is imposter syndrome is driven a lot at the surface level by our self-talk, by that inner critic, that inner dialogue. And you can either deal with imposter syndrome at the thought level, or those thoughts are kicking off biochemical reactions in the body that usually fire off the fight, flight, freeze response hormones of cortisol and adrenaline. That then feeds our experience of emotions that feeds more thoughts. And before we realize it, they keep cranking up and we get what in the UK we call our inner drama queen kicks off. So suddenly a tiny thing has become Bet a you huge are. thing. Pressing pause on your thoughts is quite hard because they just run and not many people are taught how to actually manage and choose their thoughts. The emotions, they're actually the effect. So we can't do much to change just the emotions. So what the ABC does is it helps you reset the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight, flight, freeze, stress response. When you reset that, it calms the body and it takes out those biochemical reactions of fear. It calms the fear emotions. And then you can think for calmer thoughts. So it works at that emergency fix level. But the other thing it does, if you practice it multiple times a day, even when you're not stressed, it starts to rewire the neural pathways in the brain. The thought habits that can take a tiny comment from Fred or Joe and turn it into a bout of imposter syndrome, it gives you back the power to have that perspective and go, whoa, actually, that wasn't about me. I know he's just got off the phone from his partner and had a big row. It's not about me. Let's not take this personally. Let's take it back up to evaluating. Let's not turn this into judging and mind story drama. So it's a double of impact tool. It's your emergency 60 seconds. Press pause on those thoughts to calm an imposter syndrome kickoff. And if you play with it regularly, it means that you're creating new autopilots in the brain and filters in the brain to actually notice what you're doing well. And it's really simple. So ABC is accept, breathe, choose. And when so we reason, go into this, yeah. we're, we're going yeah. into the body uh, in another way, like you had mentioned earlier, that when we begin to tap into ourselves and know whether or not imposter syndrome is actually beginning to happen for us, a part of it is the body, like we're really tapping yeah. into it. So this is tapping exactly. into the body to bring it down and be able to cope. I'm very so, curious about this acceptance before you dive into this, because <laughs> when we have these thoughts, accepting them seems like the last thing we uh, want to do. So, Faye, that is such a great point. You're not saying the thought is correct and you're not saying the thought is okay. So back Carl Jung, the famous psychologist and everything else that he did, he said what we resist persists. So what normally happens with a negative thought when we notice it is we go to war with it. We try to get rid of it. We try to beat it. We try to talk it away. It's like, no, you're wrong. I'm great at this. And the negative thought then uses something called the backfire effect, which Every parent of a teenager across the planet knows is where they dig their heels in and decide they're right. And it doesn't matter what evidence that you give. So this is how we normally deal with a negative thought is we go to war with it or we beat ourselves up going, oh, that was another negative thought. And then the drama queen cycle goes on. So can we use an actual example of a person, maybe a a lawyer that's fine for partnership. She's Mm -hmm. at a certain level in the firm. She's gone in to talk with a partner and it hasn't gone well. He's made a comment Mm -hmm. and she's not really sure if it was meant to be a cut or a not. Mm -hmm. She's ruminating about it. Out she comes. Exactly. So she'll probably be thinking thoughts like, well, who am I to go for partner anyway? And he quite clearly thinks I'm not good enough. Except is that was an imposter syndrome thought. 
that's it that's it that's all there is to accept is oh you just give it a label that was an imposter syndrome thought what that does is it takes the wind out of its sails is suddenly that thought goes oh i've been heard you press instant pause okay that was an imposter syndrome thought great okay and then you move into the breathe so it's, it takes all of the drama out and it pauses that cycle the breathe and I've got the full training on this because obviously somebody might be listening to this while they're driving. So I don't want to take anybody into a meditative state, <laughs> but the breathing is about getting grounded in your body. So I usually start with three deep sighing breaths so in through the nose. <sighs> Feel those shoulders drop and you can even give the shoulders a wiggle. So the first three sighing breaths on the breathe get you out of your stress head and into your body. That instantly gives the signal to the body of it's time to start calming down. Then I would teach people to, usually to put their hand on their belly on the diaphragm just below the rib cage and do about 60 seconds of mindful breathing. You're really feeling the physical sensations of breathing. You're allowing your shoulders to be soft. And then the other thing that you can do if it's a particularly persistent imposter syndrome thought is you breathe out. If you're standing up or if you're sitting down, make sure your feet are flat on the floor is imagine you're breathing out all of that worry, stress and anxiety through your feet into the earth. So this is actually based on an ancient yoga pose called the mountain pose. And it is a fantastic way of resetting the nervous system. So when you've done that for 60 seconds and you then go back and listen to your thoughts, they're very different thoughts. They'll be calmer. They'll be slower. You're no longer with the body flooded with adrenaline and cortisol, which puts you in a position to use the C, which is choose. And this is the icing on the cake. This is where you consciously choose to think a thought that makes you feel better. And you really need to feel that thought. So it's not a cognitive exercise. It's consciously thinking, okay, so what Fred or Joe or whoever just said in that meeting right now, that was an imposter syndrome thought. I'm going to calm my body down for 60 seconds. And you can do it in the middle of the meeting. If you're not talking, they don't even know. Just maybe with a bit less obvious sign. And then the C is right. Now I'm going to remember something that that person said to me that made me feel better something they have complimented me on or something that I know that means that actually I can do this. And you allow that just to imagine that's literally just flowing through your body. So what you're then doing is firing off the thoughts and the biochemical reactions and the emotions of actually I can. So, so you're bringing into it the emotions that you have that are positive from that other comment. So for example, exactly. if they had criticized what you had done in court, you could mm -hmm. recall the time period when you were in court and it had worked in the way that you One felt. of those genius moments, yeah, where you just suddenly come up with something and you can see it influencing the judge or influencing the jury or, yeah, one of those, because we all have examples like that in our careers. And the key here is it's got to be specific. Okay, so you're not talking about, hey, that particular case, you're looking for a thought that's like, I remember that moment in that case on that day, because then the unconscious mind can't dispute it. It's a memory that's there. Yep. What if, though, you had that thought and then you think, well, like you said in, in some of your materials, that was a fluke or, yeah, that was a great moment, but I haven't had so many of those. Or are you then back into that cycle? You ABC that thought. And this is why this is a process. It works in that moment once you've practiced it, because then you're hardwired into, oh, yeah, accept, breathe, choose. It's an imposter syndrome thought. Great. And there's a process I teach called micro wins that can help with exactly what you're describing is at the end of each day, writing down three specific things that you did well and keeping them in a journal or a notebook. So that if that bit of your brain that goes, oh yeah, but, yeah, the off, but. you just open it and say, <laughs> right, every day there were three things. You can imagine by the end of a year, that's a thousand things. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. It's like your yeah. positive journal. Exactly. And the key is to make them specific and about you. And the reason this process works so well and why it's different to positive thinking is positive thinking is when we're there in that stress cycle with those stress thoughts going, beating ourselves up. And then we plaster over the top. Oh, but I'm brilliant at what I do. And the whole body is primed to think negative thoughts. So you're so not accepting doing, it. Yeah, basically, you're trying to like paper over the cracks of a toddler's tantrum. And what we're doing with this process is we're going through neutral. So in the UK, we drive cars with gear sticks, which are called stick shifts. And if Standards you try to here. Go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if you try to go, say, from first to third gear in the UK and you don't go through neutral, you're going to have a very expensive repair bill as you destroy your gearbox. What we're doing with the ABC is going through neutral taking that 60 seconds to breathe you're resetting the nervous system that changes the emotions that calms the thoughts that opens up that choice moment by moment to then think a thought that's more empowering and that can be enough to stop imposter syndrome in its tracks and it's one of the many techniques i teach that can also then program your brain to spot what you're doing well instead of beating you up you can actually start turning it into a genuine cheerleader so now that you've been doing this yourself for a while what kind of expected results did you achieve and what could we expect to achieve? So obviously I do more than just the ABC. You know, I teach a lot more than that. But what I find now, for example, if I'm about to stretch or grow, or say I get a client opportunity that I think, wow, I never thought we'd get that one. That can be the kind of thing that will trigger imposter syndrome for people. What comes up for me now is I have like this radar in my body of, oh, I just flinched when I thought about that project. And I immediately just go, right, okay, take a few seconds, go inside, what's happening there? And sometimes it's a really useful flinch. It's like, actually, we need to get three more people on the team to be able to deliver that. Great. Let's go and put that in the action list. Sometimes it might be, like, oh, Claire, who are you to do that? And what happens then is I laugh and go, oh, yeah, that's cool. Because it's a sign that the imposter syndrome gaps were opened up again. Okay, is I've suddenly said, right, actually, I need to become that version of me to deliver this. And I'm seeing myself as this version of me. What do I need to let go of to allow myself to become that version of me and close the gap? So that's all I do now is instead of the whole coping strategies and self-sabotage, it becomes this, oh, actually, I am already that version of me. That's cool. Or I just wasn't seeing myself that way. Or, oh, actually, I, I am still running a fear about that particular thing. Great, let's go and deal with it. So imposter syndrome becomes then it becomes a sign that I need to shift who I'm allowing myself to be to step up to the next level. And it never becomes something that makes me self-sabotage or play small. And it's a really, really useful way for me to, you know, what we were saying earlier about being able to grow and develop ourselves. It becomes a useful tool to spot that, whoa, this is another chance to grow. And imposter syndrome in that fear-based way never needs to come up again. It's been really helpful. We've learned so much. And in 60 seconds, I can see how we can actually do this. So often people promise, I believe you've totally delivered on this. We're going to be able to use this to begin to make significant changes. Thank you very much for coming on today. You're so welcome, Faye. And thank you to everybody who's been listening. Go and get the proper training. You can go and deep dive on this. And yeah, get in touch. If you're on LinkedIn, let me know. How does it feel to do the ABC and learn how to choose which thoughts to feed? And also, Claire, please tell everybody how they can get your book and uh, connect with some of the other things that you've provided. I know that you also have done the research. There's the possibility of mm -hmm. obtaining that research. So how would people do that? Absolutely. So the research study, I have a whole website on imposter syndrome called ditchingimpostorsyndrome.com. 
and the research studies at ditchingimpostorsyndrome.com forward slash research. I kept it easy there. The book is available on Amazon or to order from all good bookstores. It's available as a hardback and as a, an ebook, and very soon as an audiobook as well, if you don't mind the English accent. And connecting with me and working with me, it's claireyosa.com or come and find me on LinkedIn, which is the main place that I hang out for social media online. I'd love to get to know you. Wonderful. And you did talk just to, to let everybody know there are five steps in your book that you go through that will take mm -hmm. you to the next level in dealing with your imposter syndrome. Thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you. Her Legal Global, empowering and transforming us through skills and shared wisdom. For other great episodes, follow us and be sure to check out herlegalglobal.com for a community, informative skills-based articles, and to work with me, your host, Faye Gelb.